You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A cyber attack is suspected of causing false alarms in Israel, risk service assessments, renewed warnings on the potential security risks of fitness apps. Cyber options may grow more attractive to Russia as kinetic operations stall. DDoS in St. Petersburg. Ben Yellen details a Senate bill restricting the sale of location data. Our guest is John Check from Raytheon's Intelligence and Space Division discussing the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition and a conviction in the Capital One hacking case. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. Sirens used to warn Israelis of rocket attacks sounded a false alarm in Israel over the weekend. Haaretz reports that sirens sounded in a lot and parts of Jerusalem Sunday night due to a cyber attack on local public address systems in what is being investigated as a possible Iranian attack. Citing diplomatic sources, the Jerusalem Post emphasizes that the attribution is preliminary and that the incident remains under investigation. Israel Hayom notes that some of the evidence of cyber attack remains circumstantial. The systems apparently compromised were civilian warning systems, not presumably better protected military ones. Risk Recon and Scientia have published a report on risk surface assessment, finding that organizations that are cloud first are 85% more likely to be a top performer in risk management. The researchers say, When we take a look at the cloud adoption rates of the top and bottom performers, we start to see some very clear separation. Every 10% increase in host cloud concentration results in a 2.5% increase in the probability of being a top performer. The researchers add that choosing to go majority cloud with one of the big three cloud providers, namely AWS, Azure, or GCP, has inconsequential effects rather than being simply cloud-first. Computing reports that the fitness app Strava may constitute a risk to users' privacy 
and to operational security when those users are military service members. That risk may be an active threat. Computing writes, unidentified operatives have been exploiting a security weakness in the popular fitness tracking app Strava to track the movements of Israeli defense personnel, according to Israeli open-source investigative group Fake Reporter. This isn't the first time fitness trackers in general, and Strava in particular, have been flagged as a potential OPSEC problem. The U.S. Department of Defense expressed its concerns about Strava in January 2018. Russia's offensive in the Donbass continues its pattern of heavy bombardment from relatively static positions, the Wall Street Journal reports, but there's still considerable speculation that the cyber phase of the war may intensify if a decisive victory on the ground continues to elude Moscow. Reuters reports that U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo warned the Bank Policy Institute last week that the threat of Russian cyber attack remained high. The Treasury Department reiterated its commitment to intelligence sharing during a period of heightened threat. Tanium's Tedra Burgess argues in an essay published Friday by SC Media that Russia's war against Ukraine represents a template for future, broader cyber operations in other hybrid wars. She stresses the threat of both supply chain attacks and the disruption of critical infrastructure. She also argues that assessing that threat requires an understanding of the role criminal groups play in a hybrid war. She says, These most recent developments point to a concerning trend because of the escalation and atypical behavior displayed by established hacker groups. There's potentially a power struggle in play after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This might explain the change in extortion patterns in an attempt to accumulate larger amounts of ill-gotten gain. As a result, we can expect to see this activity at the very least continue as we work to keep pace with the evolving attack surface. Whatever course the present war takes, The Hill cites a range of cybersecurity experts who think one lesson of the war is already clear. Cyber operations have become a routine part of combat, as much to be expected, we would add, as electronic warfare came to be in the 20th century. The Hill's essay is also striking for the way in which it presents influence operations as a prominent and routine part of belligerent's larger cyber campaigns. Mr. Putin's keynote address before the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum took as its theme optimism founded on the historic record and destiny of the Russian people. The view he expressed was that the present difficult time comes from the doomed American attempt to maintain a unipolar world under its own direction after declaring victory in the Cold War. In summary, here's his view of the world situation— This is the nature of the current round of Russophobia in the West and the insane sanctions against Russia. They are crazy and, I would say, thoughtless. They are unprecedented in the number of them or the pace the West churns them out at. Friday's proceedings at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum were delayed for about an hour and a half, Reuters reports, by a distributed denial-of-service attack. The now-familiar Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov put the delay down to a cyber attack that began on Thursday and affected the conference's admissions and accreditation systems, but he offered no attribution. Others, of course, speculate that the DDoS attack was organized by actors operating in the Ukrainian interest, if not under the actual direction of Ukrainian services. 
And finally, Paige Thompson, formerly an engineer with Amazon, was found guilty on Friday, the U.S. Justice Department said, of wire fraud, five counts of unauthorized access to a protected computer, and damaging a protected computer. The department added that the jury found her not guilty of access device fraud and aggravated identity theft. The New York Times reports that in 2019, Thompson was responsible for gaining access to the data of more than 100 million Capital One banking customers. The Justice Department explained how the prosecution went. They said, Using Thompson's own words in texts and online chats, prosecutors showed how Thompson used a tool she built to scan Amazon Web Services accounts to look for misconfigured accounts. She then used those misconfigured accounts to hack in and download the data of more than 30 entities, including Capital One Bank. With some of her illegal access, she planted cryptocurrency mining software on new servers with the income from the mining going to her online wallet. Thompson spent hundreds of hours advancing her scheme and bragged about her illegal conduct to others via text or online forums. Thompson's defense team argued, in effect, that their client was acting as a white hat hacker, a good-faith bug hunter, finding vulnerabilities with the intention of disclosing them to the organizations affected. The prosecutors weren't buying it and didn't see this case as one in which a legitimate vulnerability researcher had inadvertently run afoul of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, whose use against such researchers is now regarded as an improper expansion of the law's intent. The jury didn't buy it either. Thompson used the online handle Erratic, and the story is a sad one. Security Week summarizes, In interviews with the Associated Press following her arrest, friends and associates described Thompson as a skilled programmer and software architect whose career and behavior, oversharing in chat groups, frequent profanity, expressions of gender identity distress and emotional up and downs, mirrored her online handle. At one point, two former roommates obtained a protection order against her, saying she had been stalking and harassing them. Thompson joined Amazon in 2015 to work at Amazon Web Services, a division that hosted the Capital One data she accessed. She left that job the next year. Some friends said they believe the unemployed Thompson, destitute and by her own account grappling with serious depression, believe the hack could bring her attention, respect, and a new job. Thompson is scheduled to be sentenced in September. The Justice Department says... Wire fraud is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Illegally accessing a protected computer and damaging a protected computer are punishable by up to five years in prison. They note that the sentence imposed will be up to the judge. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps. 
keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. John Check is from Raytheon's Intelligence and Space Division, who are major sponsors of the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. I spoke with John Check about the competition and why he and his colleagues at Raytheon believe it's a project worth supporting. The CCDC holds eight different regional competitions with schools that are, in that, are assigned to a region and they participate in a regional champion. There's also an at-large school as well as a wildcard school, which gets in based on schools that placed a second place within their regional and go through a wildcard round to get in as well. So it's a, it's a, it's quite a long event that, you know, culminates in a, the final competition, which is the national competition. Well, let's uh, go to that final competition here. Can you give us a, a little description of what uh, the contestants faced? Happy to. So the, the competition really, they, they create a, uh, a fictional real world scenario, if that makes sense. So this year, the students were defending a gaming company that was traditionally a brick and mortar company that had an online presence. They got into some online games that they were, they were selling. And so within that, the students really need to maintain all the typical services of a company. So the, the web presence, the financial presence, the e-commerce sites, the email for the corporation, the help desk and call in areas for people that need support. And you have, and so they're the blue team. And then the red team is the ethical hacking team tries to knock those services offline periodically. And the students really work to maintain that business uh, resilience while they're being attacked by the, the red team hackers. So how did the competition go and which team eventually came out on top? The competition is really, it's, it's really a great competition. So first I'd say it went really well. The students, I mean, this competition has been happening for a while. So over time, the competition has escalated, right? The students have learned, as well as the red teamers have learned, how to anticipate certain attacks or defend against those attacks. So it's constantly evolving on both sides, on the defensive side and on the offensive side. And so it's really, the, the teams that do really well have participated for, all, for quite a few years and understand the different uh, scenarios as well as the, the techniques, tactics, and protocols that the, the offensive side uses to attack the students' networks. So this year, the, the champion was the uh, University of Central Florida, and they've won the championship five times out of the wow. 17 years. And they were the runner-up three other times. So they, that's a team that 
has a history, right? They practice very hard. They understand what's happened year over year and pass that knowledge down to the teams. And they actually have team members that were formerly in the team come in to practice with the team during the year from former students to come, to come back and help them prepare for the, the year's competition. So it's really quite a great tradition they have there and really take it very seriously and put in the hours, which is what it takes of practice to be as good as they are. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, what is the winning formula for a team like University of Central Florida? Is it, a, is it putting together uh, the, the right variety of folks on the team? Is it uh, institutional knowledge? What seems to work for them? I'd say that if I had to put it to one thing, it's that the team can communicate well. It's, cybersecurity is a team sport. And when you see the University of Central Florida in the thick of battle in one of these competitions, they're communicating very well. Each of the team members knows exactly what their role is. And they, nobody's panicking. Everybody understands what to do. They, it's really that preparedness. They know what to do. They've, they've practiced. Everybody understands what their role and responsibilities are. And it just, it really works extremely well for them. And then you layer onto that, of course, the history they have of, and the institutional knowledge they've built up through these competitions. It really makes a very strong team, a very powerful formula for success. Why are competitions like this important? What are they contributing to the overall cybersecurity community? The, the number one thing and what the, this competition really highlights, and you don't see this in all uh, competitions, but when you have someone else actively working against you, like the red teamers actively working to take the students' networks offline, uh, degrade the services, uh, and really impact their ability to defend, the, the learning, you can't just gain that anywhere. You learn it by doing. And cybersecurity, you know, absolutely need the framework and understanding of, of the, how cyber works and, and the, the traditional learning side. But having another team actively working against you, that, that really brings out some skills that you may not have had or some things that you might not have contemplated when you're doing uh, more of a theoretical exercise versus a, a live fire type exercise. And how about for Raytheon? You know, for, for you and your colleagues there uh, who put in both the financial support, but also all of the time and energy that you all put in, uh, why is it worthwhile for all of you? Well, for me, it really comes down to, you know, we're under constant attack. And I want to make sure that, you know, as Raytheon, we have a responsibility to do our part in cybersecurity. And what that means is ensuring that we're building and helping build a cyber workforce that protects all of us. I mean, over the course of years, since we've been involved, we've hired over 100 people from the competition. But I'd like to think that we have really helped thousands learn skills and really increase their cyber proficiency as well as maybe convince other people to join the cyber community to help defend our way of lives. And so for me, it's really more just about the typical, are we going to be able to hire people out of this group? It's what are we doing to ensure the entire community gets raised by having competitions like the CCDC that help protect our way of life and build that next generation of cybersecurity professionals. That's John Check from Raytheon's Intelligence and Space Division. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hey, Dave. How are you? Good, good, good. Uh, Interesting story uh, from Joseph Cox. Uh, This is over on the Motherboard website, and it's titled, Sweeping Legislation Aims to Ban the Sale of Location Data. Caught my eye here. Ben, what's going on? So Motherboard and Joseph Cox himself reported uh, a couple of months ago multiple instances in which companies were selling location data of people who had visited abortion clinics. Right. Um, And this came in the wake of the draft opinion that was leaked overturning Roe v. Wade. So Mm. it was very, uh, I think it resonated with a lot of people because we face this future where abortion is going to be illegal in many states in this country. Yeah. And some of these companies were making subsets of this data freely available. Uh, And they're not just selling it to data brokers. They are. Um, but sometimes they're selling it to purchasers that include law enforcement, local state and law enforcement agencies. Uh, And there's a real fear that people's private information could be given to these agencies and and it could be used to justify uh, arrests and and prosecutions. Mm. So with that in mind, there is a proposal coming out of the United States Senate called the Health and Location Data Protection Act, which would outlaw the sale of location data harvested from smartphones. This is a blanket ban on the sale of location data, it does not just apply in the abortion context. It applies to any sale of location data to a private broker. Hmm. Part of the impetus of this is there's kind of this loophole that if a law enforcement agency, federal or state, purchases data, then they don't have to obtain a warrant to to search that data. Right. Whereas if they had not purchased it, they have to go through the traditional warrant process, get it approved by a judge. And who has time for that? Ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I think that has motivated legislators, including the lead co-sponsor or the lead sponsor here, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Hmm. to introduce this bill. That is the major thing this bill does. It also does other things. Gives a bunch of enforcement powers to the Federal Trade Commission. There's an allegation that they've been uh, under-resourced over the past several years in rooting out these abusive trade practices. And it also gives individual users a cause of action to sue in state or federal court these data brokers uh, to assert their right to, uh, their right to private information. Hmm. Uh, so it would be granting millions of potential users the right to sue these big companies. Uh, It would be a brand new cause of action. Uh, There are some exceptions in the bill. So activities that are compliant under HIPAA, for example, things where, and I can't really think of a good example of this, but things where if the information was not sold, there might be a violation of First Amendment rights. And then things like national security, those are built in as exceptions, but it's a very broad piece of legislation. Hmm. What do you think its chances are? <laughs> Not good, Bob. Not great, Bob. Okay. As if he asks rhetorically. <laughs> yeah. So I get why these legislators are trying to do this in the wake of um, the draft 
Roe v. Wade or the the draft opinion in Dobbs, which would overturn the Roe v. Wade decision. Yeah, I think that uh, there is sort of this political groundswell um, to to protect people who are going to live in these states where abortion is outlawed. What they are doing is introducing the most controversial issue in politics into a debate about uh, data location, the sale of, uh, of location data. Uh-huh. And that might be the poison pill that kills it. You huh. have a very closely divided House where it potentially could pass. And then you have a 50-50 Senate mm-hmm. where to get anything passed that's not some sort of budget bill, you need 60 votes. Uh, and if this is motivated by the desire to protect people seeking abortion care, um, that's very unlikely to obtain 10 Republican votes. I will say that there are other efforts uh, to constrain the government's uh, or or the uh, ability of these companies to sell location data that have a better chance of succeeding, including Senator Wyden's bill, which would simply require a warrant for any government agency to access uh, data that was purchased uh, by one of these companies. Mm. That take, take away a, that end around. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that stands a better chance of passage. I think that has uh, more widespread bipartisan support. Uh, and it's not closely interlocked with such a uh, divisive issue. Hmm. Um, but I, would, I, I don't see this Senator Warren legislation advancing uh, in, in the near term, even though it is extremely relevant. Hmm. Do you think we're headed towards a time when we get bipartisan agreement that enough is enough with this stuff? Yes, I do, but I just don't know exactly what form that is going to take. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there is bi- – I think there is bipartisan concern um, based on our experience in the past several years that something is foul about data brokers purchasing this very private location data and selling it to private sector entities but also law enforcement. I think there is widespread concern that that's happening. Right. Um, I don't know if there's widespread consensus that there needs to be a blanket ban on the purchase of location data. Hmm. And the lobbyists haven't weighed in here. I mean, if if we, yeah, (laughs) if we had a realistic effort to uh, constrain those purchases, we'd start to see advertisements. We'd start to see lobbying campaigns saying things that your consumers enjoy, uh, things that they take for granted would go away if we weren't able to sell this very valuable data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just, I don't know that we've seen the full contours of this debate play out. Uh, and I don't think we will until there's a credible threat that this type of legislation is actually going to pass. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an interesting step along the way. I, I suppose it's a little discouraging that, that these things uh, have a hard time getting better traction, but such is the way of things right now. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, getting any legislation is hard to pass, uh, but certainly something where you have this controversial element to it uh, makes things that much more difficult. Mm. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, 
Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Patrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.